Well, good morning. morning. It's good to be back with you. It's been almost a month since uh, we've been up here. So it's really good to be back. Sue and I had a wonderful trip away. Uh, We are so grateful for all the folks that uh, covered all the bases for us while we were gone. And uh, it's just really good to be back. It's always good to be home with uh, God's people. We are resuming our journey through the Gospel of Mark today entitled Servant and Savior. But before we get into the message, uh, I want to share just a couple of family connection type items. First, I really want to express my gratitude to Brother Larry Iman for preaching while Sue and I were away on our trip. And I, I hope that you were blessed by his excellent messages on rediscovering the passion and the promises and the power of God's Spirit. I was able, while we were away, to view all three uh, each Sunday morning, I tried to find a time, sometimes in the afternoon, to, to tune in on, on YouTube to be able to catch up with you. Uh, if you missed any of those messages, you can always view them as well. They're either available on our Gardenway Church Facebook page or on the YouTube channel as you search for Gardenway Church. Uh, second, I want to just thank those who helped to make possible the hosting of the, the mobile dental clinic yesterday. I'm especially grateful to Colleen Baxter for connecting us with Medical Teams International and uh, for her work in the dental van. Uh, Rich, and, Rich and Fran Green put together a delicious blueberry pancake breakfast for our guests. Uh, Lynn Tebbets was uh, serving as our host and registration person all day. Uh, Janine Hamilton in our office scheduled appointments all week long for those needing dental help. So um, I'm thankful to all those people to make that happen. And uh, we are exploring the option of making this a recurring event, maybe on a quarterly basis. And so if you would be interested in being a part of a team that serves our community in this way, all you have to do is let us know, write dental clinic team on one of our connection cards out in the lobby, or uh, call the church office, email us, let us know, hey, I'd, I'd be interested in serving some way on a dental, uh, the dental clinic team. Uh, you don't have to have any professional experience if you can serve pancakes or greet people or help in a myriad of ways we could use the help. So uh, we're exploring that, and if you're interested, let us know. Uh, Third, I want to uh, let you know of kind of a last-minute item, uh, a request that I hope you can help with. It's uh, our spring break food drive, and this all happened while I was gone, so we didn't get the word out. I got the email yesterday, as a matter of fact. So uh, next Sunday is the last day to turn in food. We really need a lot of food for Holt Elementary School, our partner school down the street. Those kids go home on the spring break, and many of them rely on breakfast and lunch from the school. And so we try to put together meals for over 100 kids for that whole week. So uh, out in the, in the lobby, there's some flyers like this. There's some posted on the windows as you leave that tell the kinds of items that we need. And so if you'd like to participate, stop by the grocery store sometime this week, pick up the needed items. You can drop them by here at the church or bring them next Sunday. And we will uh, work hard to be a blessing to our kids in our community. And then finally... I hope and pray that this will be my last ever comments on mask wearing. As you are well aware, you, well, yeah, here's some amens. Uh, the mandates in, in Oregon will be lifted on March 11th. That means that this Sunday, today, is the last day that we will be asking you to wear masks in the church building. For some of you, this is a cause for great rejoicing, I know. Uh, For others, this news comes with some feelings of apprehension. And so whatever your point of view, whatever your feelings, I want to just one more time remember to encourage us to treat one another with grace, with respect, with honor, whether we choose to wear masks or not. And let's remember that our 
priority is keeping our focus on gathering to worship the Lord. All right? So those are my hopefully final comments on mask wearing. Now let's pray and get going with the message. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we are grateful to be together as God's family. Father, we pray that you will bless us as we spend time in your word uh, this morning. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit will speak to us in powerful ways as we listen to the words of our Lord Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So we are in Mark chapter 12 as we resume our journey through the gospel of of Mark. We're calling today's message, Vineyards, Volatility, and Violence. Barbara Crescenvage insisted that clams are not a regular part of her diet. And yet one snowy evening in December of 2005, she found herself craving an old recipe of clams casino. And so she went to the local seafood market and she purchased and brought home four dozen quahogs. That's a type of clam, uh, particularly abundant along the eastern shores of the United States. And Mr. Crescenvidge was in the midst of shucking the shellfish for dinner when he discovered one that looked like it was dead. Had a different color to it and he thought it might have been diseased and so he was about to throw it into the trash when Mrs. Crescenvidge said, let me see that clam. And she took a closer look. And indeed, she discovered it wasn't dead. In fact, inside that live clam was a rare, possibly priceless, purple pearl. Experts estimate that roughly one in two million quahog clams contain a gem-quality pearl like the one found by the Crescenvidges. Due to the great rarity of the find, it has been difficult to even place a value on it. Though some have estimated the pearl to be worth tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars. Can you imagine finding that clam in your dinner? Well, just as that clam was seen as useless, nearly discarded, Jesus was rejected by the religious leaders of his day. His teaching was seen as useless trash. But in reality, there is nothing more valuable, is there? Jesus and the salvation only he can bring is the pearl of great price that each of us must choose to either discard or to accept. Now, I've just shared with you a parable. A parable is a simple story that is used to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson. Sometimes parables are expanded and they're known as allegories. An allegory is a story, a poem, or picture that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning, typically a moral or political or spiritual one. Allegories can be alluring. They're quite interesting. I'll never forget that when I was in high school English class, we were assigned to read George Orwell's novel about power-hungry pigs that took over a farm and oppressed their fellow animals. Orwell intended Animal Farm not just to be a story about animals, but to be an indictment on communist leaders who oppress people. Some other well-known examples of allegories include Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, which has been translated into over 200 languages. It's a a picture of a, a Christian's pilgrimage through life. 
Some others that you might be familiar with. The Lord of Rings trilogy is an amazing allegory by J.R.R. Tolkien. And more recently, the novel series The Hunger Games was made into several movies as an allegory about the abuses of reality TV. Well, today, as we resume our our, our journey through the Gospel of Mark, we're going to take a look at a parable of Jesus that draws from a well-known allegory in the Old Testament. Author Albert Moeller puts it this way, rather than seeing parables as the Christian version of Aesop's fables, They are incredible explosions of biblical truth. Jesus threw them at his opponents and consoled his followers with them. Each parable detonated with a very clear message. I love that statement that Mr. Moeller made. So we could say that a parable is like a story with a punchline. The unusual twist is what gives the parable its impact and biting force as it jolts the listener into seeing things in a new way, bringing us to a point of decision or action. So before we look at our parable from Mark chapter 12, and if you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. We're going to be there in just a moment. But before we get there, I want you to first listen to the allegory that Jesus bases his parable on. It comes from the book of Isaiah. This particular allegory was written 700 years before the time of Christ. And so Jesus will now take this allegory, well known to the Jewish people, and turn it into a powerful parable that delivers a knockout punch to the religious leaders of his day. So let's listen first to Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded only wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Incidentally, the word wild there refers to stinking, rotten things. See that picture? The allegory continues. And now I will tell you what I will do in my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste It shall not be pruned, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plantings. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Now, With that allegory as as a background, in Mark chapter 12, in verses 1 through 9, Jesus preaches a historical parable with a powerful twist or explosion that leaves the religious leaders plotting his demise. Isaiah's allegory speaks of judgment, and Jesus' parable ends with judgment. So now, let's listen to the words of our Lord from Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. 
And Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took the servant and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another servant, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And so the response of the religious leaders was fear. It was anger, and yes, even violence. And so as we look at this unique parable, this parable reveals three major attributes of God. And today, we want to consider these three attributes, and I especially want us to consider what our response will be. It's easy to be, read about others' responses, but what will our response be to these three attributes of God? So let's take a look. The first attribute of God for us to consider is God's goodness. God's goodness. We see his goodness right in verse 1 of the story. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went to another country. Now, those people that were listening to Jesus as he taught them that day in the temple courts were likely facing the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives would have been literally covered with grapevines. They could also see, as Jesus taught them in the courtyards, one of the doors of the temple, the great and mighty doors on which was carved a gigantic grapevine that was embellished with leaves made out of silver and gold. And so the, his listeners would know immediately, as Jesus spoke about this vineyard, that he was talking about Israel. In Psalm chapter 80, in verses 8 and 9, God's goodness is shown when he transplanted the tender vine from Egypt to Canaan, where it flourished. Listen to these words. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root, and it filled the land. In those days, fences would have provided protection around the vineyard, protection from wild animals like boars. And often those fences would have been built out of rocks. 
And then a pit would have been dug, and it would have been lined with smooth stone, a place to collect the wine as the grapes were pressed. And a tall tower would have been constructed to provide a place for the workers to to live and from where they could spot the enemy coming from the distance. The owner of the vineyard went over and above to provide everything necessary, security, storage, shelter, Every provision was made so that the vineyard could be prosperous. The people living and working there should feel fortunate to have such a good owner. And in a very similar way, friends, God is good to us, isn't he? He is so good to us. I'm reminded of the words in 2 Peter chapter 1 where Peter writes, He's given us everything we need for life. And godliness. God's goodness surrounds us. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus reminds us that God the Most High is kind. Kind, Jesus says, to the ungrateful and even the evil. We serve a good God. A God filled with goodness. In our parable, this arrangement where the landowner would lease the property to tenants was very common in Jesus' day. Normally, the landowner would receive between one-third and half of what was harvested, leaving the rest for those who worked the land. This was a good and a fair arrangement, and it reminds us that our God is good and fair to us when we live according to his ways, his plan. Our God is a good God. Amen? He is a good God. Next, in verses 2 through 6, we want to see a second attribute of God. Not only is God good, but also displayed is God's graciousness. Notice the first part of verse 2. When the season came. Now, it's important to know that a long time would have been passed between that first planting of that vineyard and being able to enjoy the fruit of the vine. It usually took about four years for a newly planted vineyard to produce a harvest. And then in addition, according to God's law outlined in the the book of Leviticus, for the first three years after the grapevine was planted, no one was allowed to eat of the fruit. And then the fruit of the fourth year was considered holy to God and saved for him. And so it wasn't until the fifth year that those working in the vineyard could finally enjoy the fruits of their labor. And so when the season came, when the time was right, the owner did what? He sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now, it would have been expected that that owner would send someone to collect the rent, if you will. I also want you to notice that the theme of fruit comes up again in Jesus' teaching. If you remember a, a few weeks back when we were in chapter 11, Jesus had cursed a fig tree. Remember that? And that fig tree was another symbol for Israel. Not only is the fig tree a symbol for Israel, so is the, the vine. And he cursed that fig tree because it didn't have any fruit. Jesus is not pleased when we are not fruitful. And so when Jesus uses the word servant in his parable here, those listening in the first century immediately would have thought of the ancient prophets. Those servants, often sent by God 
to grow the faith of the people and to search for fruit. But I want us to notice what they did to that very first servant in verse 3. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. That means they treated him with contempt. They scourged him. And it's telling that he went away empty-handed because in order for the owner to legally retain the property, the law said that he had to receive produce from the tenants. And so by not giving him anything, the tenants were trying to usurp his authority and claim the land for themselves. And then in verse 4, we see again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. This servant had his head kicked in and he was abused in shameful ways. And yet, do you see God's grace continuing? God's graciousness is amazing. We sang about that this morning, didn't we? The amazing grace of God. God's grace continues to be extended. Again in verse 5, he sent another servant and they killed him. The workers mistreated and even murdered the messengers that the owner sent their way. Now, you would think that the owner would stop about now and get ready to send in a SWAT team or something, right? But what does he do? We read that he continues to keep giving and giving and giving because he is gracious. And so, with many others, some they beat, some they killed. You know, in general, people don't really want to hear from prophets. It's really no different today, is it? We even have a little saying in, a, in our vernacular, right? We say, hey, don't kill the messenger. Don't kill the messenger. You know, most of us would rather get rid of the messenger than to hear a message that we don't like. Think about the prophets of old. Elijah was driven into the wilderness. Zechariah was stoned to death. Jeremiah was beaten and thrown into a well. It's believed that Isaiah was sawn in two with a wooden saw. The prophet Uriah was killed with a sword. Hebrew writer in chapter 11, we can read about some of these ancient prophecies. He says, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. You see, that's, that's the graciousness of God. Sending servant after servant after servant so that his people will respond in the proper way. Everyone listening to Jesus that day was thinking that, that the owner would be just totally justified in wiping out all the workers after they did all those unspeakable things. You know, Martin Luther once wrote, he said, if I were God and the world treated me as if, I, as, if as it treated him, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. That's kind of how we feel too, right? Who would put up with all this stuff? I'll tell you who. A God who is filled with graciousness. Instead, the owner in the ultimate demonstration of grace, what does he do? He sends someone very dear to him. Look at the first half of verse 6. He still had one other, a beloved son. This is very similar to the language of Genesis 22. When God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Remember that story? Take your son, your only son whom you love, up and sacrifice him. 
Also might make you think of the most famous verse of all, John 3.16. For God, what? So loved the world that he did what? He sent, he gave his only son. In our text, the phrase one other literally means one and only. Beloved means dear. You know, back when we first started Mark, we read uh, this passage in Mark 1.11. It was when Jesus was baptized. It says, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. You see, when God speaks, it's all about his son in whom he delights. A number of weeks ago, again, in in our journey through Mark, when we were in chapter 9, we read these words from the Father. This was on the Mount of Transfiguration when the, the, the voice from the cloud spoke and it said, this is my what? Beloved Son. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. My beloved Son. And so in our text, in the end of verse 6, it says, finally, He sent Him, that loved, beloved one, He sent Him to them saying, they will respect my Son. They will respect my son. That word finally can also be translated as last of all. And that means there's no other options here. This is it. This is the last and the only option. The son is the final, ultimate demonstration of the owner's grace. And the son is the ultimate demonstration of God's graciousness in our life. There is no other. Muhammad is not the final prophet. Joseph Smith is not the final prophet. It's only Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Jesus left nothing unsaid that his father gave him to say. He left nothing undone that his father gave him to do. Finally, he sent him to them. And yet what happens? When the tenants see the son, they huddle up and they decide to do what? To slay him. In verse 7, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Some scholars think that the, the, tenant, the tenants assume that the owner was dead because it's been such a long time since he sent anybody. And so they think that if they kill the son, they'll be able to claim the vineyard for themselves. There was a a custom at that time that ownerless land could be lawfully possessed by whoever lived on the land. So they think if they get rid of the son, it's all theirs. So verse 8 tells us what they did. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. That phrase, threw him out, it means to forcefully expel. It's the same phrase that we've seen used in Mark a number of times already about Jesus casting out demons, throwing out demons, forcefully expelling. That's what they did to this son. They threw him out of the vineyard, threw his body over the wall. To leave someone unburied was an incredible act of dishonor. And yet, despite the rejection. And the disrespect. Despite the hard-heartedness and hatred, God's goodness, God's graciousness continue to be displayed. 
And this leads us to the third attribute of our Heavenly Father. Not only is God so good, not only is He so gracious, but let us also think about God's glory. God's glory. We've seen so far in our journey through Mark that Jesus, the master teacher, he frequently uses questions, doesn't he? Probing questions, personal questions, provocative questions. And so now we see in our text in verse 9 that Jesus asks a question that is both probing and provocative. He says to those listening to him after the parable, what will the owner of the vineyard do? What will he do? Well, the religious leaders listening would certainly have identified themselves with the landowner, right? He's kind of the hero of the story, so who else should they be but the hero of the story? Until Jesus turns the tables on them once again, and he identifies them as the wicked tenants. They're not the landowner. They are the wicked tenants. They are the the villains in the story, the violent ones. And then he answers his own question with the answer that they are likely formulating in their own minds. What does Jesus say? What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Because the owner had been so good and so gracious so many times, he would be totally justified in destroying those who had rebelled against him. In the minds of the servants, the owner was just distant and disengaged so that he would never do anything to them. Perhaps they thought that he would just keep on giving grace and that they could get away with their behavior as they sent away one servant after another. By the way, is that ever our response to God's goodness and his graciousness? To think we can get away with it a little while longer? To destroy means to bring to emptiness. In Matthew's account of this parable, in Matthew 21, we read an expanded explanation of what will happen to those who reject the Son. Listen to these words. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their seasons. And so we know from history that judgment on the Jewish nation came in 70 AD when the Roman army swept in and they came and leveled the temple. The very temple where Jesus was standing in the courtyards telling this story just a few decades later was leveled to the ground. You see, to reject the God of grace means to face the God of wrath. Everyone, everyone will stand before Jesus Christ and face him as Savior or as judge. We will either face the lamb or the lion. In Romans chapter 11, it states these twin truths of God's character. Paul says, note then the kindness and the severity of God. And so the reference to the owner giving the vineyard to others, you understand what that is? That speaks of the gospel being extended beyond the Jewish people to the Gentiles. That's to us, folks, to you, to me. The glory of God is to be shared with everyone. 
That's been God's plan all along. Now, in verses 10 and 11, Jesus frames a a very personal question to them as he changes the metaphor. He changes from a vineyard to a building and to the imagery, uh, the imagery changes from the sun to the stone. And I, I love how he says to the religious leaders that they haven't read their own scriptures. Listen to Jesus' words. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is quoting there from Psalm 118, which was sung out by the crowds just a few days before this event that we're reading about today. Before that that day in the temple, you remember that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of that donkey, remember that? We call that Palm Sunday as the people shouted out in praise, Hosanna, and what did they say? They gave praise and glory to Jesus as the son of David, and they said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That all comes out of Psalm 118, and Jesus takes that passage, so familiar. Every Jew had sung those songs as they made their way up to Jerusalem year after year for Passover. And he takes those very familiar words and he applies them to himself. The religious leaders see Jesus as a little worthless pebble from Galilee. A nothing. But he is the glorious rock. The cornerstone. They rejected the stone. They cast it aside. But in a marvelous reversal, what does God do? He takes what they throw away. And he makes it the cornerstone of the kingdom. The rejection and death of the son in the story. It seems like a total tragedy, doesn't it? But look at verse 11. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest, most glorious turnaround in all of history. What was meant for evil, meant for destruction brings about glory for God and for his people. You know, the key to a good foundation is a totally straight cornerstone. If the cornerstone is not correct, the whole building will be unstable. The Jewish leaders were the builders, and they were determined that Jesus was not from the right place. He didn't come from the right family. He didn't have the right education. He didn't have the right credentials. And so what? They rejected him. But God took his rejected son and made him the cornerstone of his church. Glory to God, amen? That is glorious. That is the glory of God. And yet how sad it is when we read those final words. They left him. They left him and went away. They knew that that parable was preached against them. It was that bomb going off. Truth bomb. But their hearts are so hardened that all they can do is leave and run away. And friends, we have a choice to make as well. And that is that we will either surrender to the sun or be crushed by the stone. What will our choice be? Our God is incredibly good. And he is overwhelmingly gracious. And he will get all the glory God is so good. Take a look around you. Because 
God's goodness is everywhere. His goodness is in the people in this room. His goodness is in the family of believers that God calls his church. His goodness is in the beauty of nature that he's created for us to manage and enjoy. God's goodness surrounds us. Paul in Romans 2 verse 4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you presume on that? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God is good, but he's good for a reason and a purpose. And it's so that we will turn to him and go his way. God is also so gracious. He is so gracious. He continues to give us so many opportunities to receive his son. Peter in 2 Peter 3.9 says that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's goodness, God's grace is for a purpose. It's to draw us to him again and again and again. I like author Ray Pritchard's statement about this. He says, if your view of God's grace makes it easier for you to sin, you've either got the wrong God or the wrong grace. There's a little truth bomb for you. God will get the glory. Even as we look in this world and we think, where's the justice? Things aren't fair. There's a pandemic. There's wars going on in the Ukraine. People that we love are sick. People that we love have died. Where's the justice? Where's the glory in any of that? God will get the glory. He gets the glory when we receive his son. When we build our life on him as the cornerstone. But the goodness and the grace and the glory, they're not for us alone. His plan is that they be shared. Shared by us, through us, in us. A few years ago, in May of 2016, a local government official in a rural part of the Philippines unveiled a family treasure to her community, a 75-pound pearl. 75 pounds! Look at that thing. The official received the parable from a relative when he was moving. The man had found the parable inside a giant clam while fishing, and for years he had kept it as a good luck charm. The pearl had stayed hidden under his bed for over 10 years. Can you imagine that under your bed? Oh my goodness. Now, however, that pearl is on display in the local city hall. Measuring more than two feet long and one foot wide, the pearl could potentially be the largest natural pearl ever found in a giant clam. Kind of makes you wonder what other treasures people might be hiding under their beds or in their closets or in their attics. Well, how about you? Are you displaying that pearl of great price in your life? Are you sharing it with others? Or is it safely hidden away for you alone? Is your faith in Christ a good luck charm? 
Or are you actively, actively seeking to reflect the goodness and the grace and the glory of God to the people that he brings into your life each and every day? Friends, that's our calling. That is our purpose as his sons and daughters, not to hide it away under our bed, but to allow our faith and the glory of God to be recognized by all those who see us. Will you pray with me? Father God, we are so grateful, Lord, that you have been so patient with us. Father, for some of us, you were patient for years while we went our own way. Father, for some of us, you're you're patient even today as we do things and say things and think things and live in ways that are not pleasing to you and not honoring to you. And yet, Lord, your, your patience and your forbearance and your grace extends to us. And we are thankful. Lord, and I pray today that your Holy Spirit would bring us to a point of repentance time and time again as we reflect on our brokenness and on your glory and on your invitation to be a part of your eternal family. Guide us this week, I pray, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Before we sing our final song, I I want to give you a challenge. Here's our challenge for the week, all right? This week, I want you to share God's glory or God's goodness or God's grace with at least one other person. You can start thinking right now about who that person's going to be. Be thinking about how you can share God's glory or grace or goodness. Maybe it's through a, a parable from your own life, a story, a truth, a reality. Maybe it's from a carefully placed truth from God's word, spoken at just the right time to somebody in need. That's the challenge. Share God's glory, grace, and goodness with one person. Let's stand together. We're going to sing this as our final song. May God bless us as we go out to share his glory, his goodness, and his grace. Let's sing together.